This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 67. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. There are times in life that making a pivot down a non-traditional path, especially in your career, will significantly change your future. And someone who knows how powerful a pivot can be is our guest this episode, Amin El Hassan. You know Amin currently as an ESPN NBA analyst on such TV shows as The Jump with Rachel Nichols and Sports Nation. And don't forget about ESPN Radio, where you can also hear Amin on the Dan Levitard Show, sharing his knowledge as an NBA insider from his time working in the front office with the Phoenix Suns, serving as the assistant director of basketball operations. He's also spent time as a scouting coordinator and a video coordinator, so there's no doubt he knows the NBA before he made one of his pivots in life to ESPN. Here's episode 67 with Amin El Hassan. Well, I mean, thanks for being a part of my sports podcasting journey. Really don't know what the hell I'm doing, I mean, but I'm diving into it. Of none, none of us are. That's that's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah. So, but when I watch and see you, you are so much more polished, and I'm like, okay, that guy's got his act together, <laughs> and so he knows what he's talking about. But I can't thank you enough for letting me steal some of your time. Oh, no problem. No problem. Anytime. You know, you, you say, well, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, you're already on the right track, at least in my humble opinion. But as, as far as sports goes, um, I, I mean, I don't think anyone has a traditional path. I think everyone's path in this industry is very non-traditional. Yeah, and obviously yours is non-traditional as well. So let's yeah. let's step back. And what's your first memory of sports and the first time you remember becoming intrigued with sports? Uh, it was my father who played in a Sunday kind of soccer league, you know, 40 and over soccer league or something like that. And uh, we would go with him and watch him play. Um, and this is, I was probably four or five years old. I was young. I know I, know I was young because I, I had no idea how good or not good my father was. I thought he was good until, until I got old enough later in life to play with him. And then I realized, Oh my God, I'm so much better than my father. <laughs> that was, that was, but at that age, I, I didn't know any better. Um, and so, and my earliest memory of watching someone do it at a high level was on TV. I remember, I want to say it was the 86 finals. I believe it was the 86 NBA Finals was my earliest memory of watching basketball on TV and the 80, uh, excuse me, and then the 86 World Cup. I remember watching 86 World Cup in soccer. 
So this was, so when I was eight years old, my family moved back to Sudan. Uh, so I, I spent between the ages of eight and 14 in Sudan. And I was really my formative years of starting to play soccer and play it very well. And then I started, I really got into basketball probably when I was 10 or 11, maybe even 12. I got in there late. Now, were you born in America and then moved to Sudan? Yes. Yeah. So we were, we were in New York. Uh, so I was born in Sudan and I came to New York when I was a baby. I was about four months old. And then between the age of four months and eight years, uh, eight years old, I lived in New York City. And then uh, when I was eight, we went back to Sudan, and I lived in Sudan between eight and 14. Um, and that's uh, where, I think that's where it's like, okay, this is the, I'm becoming, you know, where sports wasn't just kind of this thing. I think at the age eight, that young age, and now I have children of my own, I, I, now I get it. Uh, because at that young age, I was just too wild. I was just running around. You couldn't keep me still anywhere to even learn the rules of a game, let alone uh, you know play it in an organized fashion. So when I went to Sudan, that's when I really started playing soccer seriously and and you know taking it seriously and being part of teams and stuff like that. And then I was at probably 11 or 12 years old when I like really started getting into basketball. And then when I was 14, we moved uh, back to New York. And now why did your family move back to Sudan when you were eight? It was my dad's job. So my dad was, um, he was a diplomat for Sudanese government. And so when we were in New York the first time, uh, he was kind of, oh, not an ambassador. It was not high of a level, but um, he was part of the diplomatic mission that was part of the, 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 you know, part of the Sudan's permanent like UN team that was in New York. And then uh, when he went back to Sudan, like his assignment had basically ended, so they they called him back. And uh, you know, he had a couple of other assignments during that time, but we didn't go with him. And then uh, when I was fourteen, he actually he. Well, he took a quote unquote leave of absence, but he was really quitting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he got a, he got a job back in New York. And so, but he, he told he told you know our State Department basically the Foreign Ministry. That was just a, it's a temporary leave of absence, and like I, I don't I think they're still waiting on him. <laughs> that's a long day. wait. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's so he went back and you know he got a job uh, with one of the UN agencies, and that's and you know that was our that was our out to come back and and live here because if it weren't for that I would have I would have stayed in Sudan I probably would have gone to college in Sudan I, mean, I definitely wouldn't be working in sports I know that so did sports so was that a, another avenue for you to really get acclimated back into America well yeah definitely it, it was definitely uh, I mean that was something that you know you definitely can make bonds and make friendships and stuff like that off the bat so yeah, definitely that was that was a gateway, and then obviously being a basketball fan and talking about basketball in your school, uh, that I made a lot of friends just like, you know, being a guy like, hey, I know know a lot about the NBA, and always up for a conversation about who's better or whatever, you know. Well, and you obviously were in New York at a prime time for mm. Knicks basketball. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is the Knicks. The height of the Knicks. This is Pat Riley's Knicks. This was uh, 
you know, every year you were going to play Michael Jordan and the Bulls or Reggie Miller and the Pacers, and you knew you hated them. And then at some point, you know, Pat Riley and the Heat, <laughs> the tables turned, and uh, you know, you knew you didn't like them. And, you know, it was, it, it was, it was a time where I think, other than Michael Jordan and maybe Shaq, basketball was still a very regional thing. And what I mean by that is, you rooted for the team that was from where you are. Because for a very simple reason, I think people people nowadays have it mixed up. They think because it's, oh, it's tougher, it's cooler to root for the home team. It's none of those things. It's just you didn't have the opportunity to watch, you know, the Lakers every day. They were on national TV, what, a handful of times, on usually on the weekends because it was, uh, you know, NBC or whatever. But, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to watch basketball, you had to watch a team that was on all the time. And so for us in New York, you're either watching Knicks games or Nets games. And the Nets weren't good and the Knicks were good. So it's like, okay, this makes it very easy to be a Knicks fan. You know, they, they play well, they go deep in the playoffs. And so it's easy to hate Michael Jordan and hate, hate Reggie Miller and hate all these other teams that were standing in the way, so to speak. But at the end of the day, that's not because of any sort of higher value system. It's because that's, that's the only opportunity we had. And now it's that's why nowadays when people try to shame people like a kid says, "Oh, I'm a Warriors fan." Oh, you bandwagon! Like, you know, why wouldn't he like the Warriors? They're on TV all the time. You can watch them whenever he wants, and they're awesome at basketball. How is that? Us like in what other part of society do we look at someone doing something at the highest level, mastery, true mastery? Like, you like them, figures? <laughs> yeah, I like watching <laughs> basketball played well. I like going to restaurants with the food tastes good. Like. It has nothing to do with being a bandwagon. Everything to do with appreciating the finer things. It's amazing how we do not appreciate success of some of these teams and how we want to break them down immediately once they have reached yep. a pinnacle of success. And to your point, as far as how basketball and even sports and life as it is now, how different it was back then relative to the access you have to content, I remember distinctly, if you missed a highlight, you didn't see it again. <laughs> so you couldn't yeah. go, I mean, yeah. you couldn't go back and try to find, oh, I need to see that play of you know, what Michael Jordan did. You just hoped somewhere down the line center. again. That 11 o'clock Sports Center was, was the center of the universe. That's right. That's- and, it, and so it was very difficult. So obviously you're a huge Knicks fan. Well, I was. I'm not anymore. So was it a situation that when you move away from New York that you no longer become a Knicks fan? Oh, no, no, no. It was, it was, it was, I stopped being a Knicks fan when I started working for the Knicks. It was, it started, it started there. So when I worked, so my first job in pro sports, if you want to call it, that was with the Hawks. Um, but it was part time and it was in the marketing department. And I mean, it was good. It was a gateway and it, it, it allowed me to know that this was an opportunity you could have an, a career doing this um, and open my eyes to that. And I'm forever grateful for that, but I'll be honest. I, I wasn't a very, I didn't hide the fact that I was a Knicks fan when I worked for the Hawks every year when the Knicks came to town, I would take that day off. That was the only day I didn't work and I would come and I'd wear a Nick t-shirt and I'd be obnoxious and everything like that. And then my next job I worked was a basketball operations, a full-time basketball operations internship. And it was with the Knicks. And that's when, uh, you know, the saying, you know, you see how the sausage is made. 
uh, I saw how the sausage is made, and I was not. Uh, it was. <laughs> it, it, it's a sobering experience. Let me put it that way. It's a sobering experience, and so that was when I kind of understood. I don't think I can be a fan anymore. Uh, part of it was because it was my favorite team and seeing how they were run. And part of it was just, you know, you grow up and you think to yourself, you know what, if I want to do this for real, you can't be loyal to anything other than the person who signs your check at the end of the day. And even then, some people might, might argue that uh, <laughs> you don't even have to be loyal to that to those people. And so what was it? what was it, though, about what you saw that and how the organization was run that turned you off so bad? Well, I mean, it was a lot of it was just, um, hmm, how would I put it? It was a mismanagement. It was an environment of kind of fear and speaking in hushed tones. It was an environment where not a whole lot of thinking outside the box was encouraged, um, where resources were for a team that's rich, owned by a billionaire that owns a cable company that for much of its constituents and its customers don't even have an, an option of choosing other than, anything other than that cable company as a provider. But things like, you know, our computers were like from a hundred years ago. Um, and, and I mean, it was just like, nobody cared. There's a lot of it was just nobody cared or people were very concerned about covering their own rear end. And it just, it was, it, it, it was kind of, uh, I was disappointing. It was very disappointing because you have this feeling like, oh, I'm going to work for the Knicks. Hey, man, we're going to try and win a championship. My favorite team and everyone here is, you guys are just as enthusiastic and driven as I am. And you look around the room and you're like, no, these people come in here to, <laughs> to, you know, to not get fired pretty much. And I don't mean that as an indictment of the people I worked with at the time, but that stuff trickles downhill, right? You act that way because your boss treats you in a way that incentivizes and makes very central to the performance of your job, your ability to do these things. And why does he do that or she do that is because their boss is doing the same thing to them. And at some point there is a start to this faucet where this trickle down is happening. And that faucet is Jim Dolan, the owner. And and we know the history with him and what he's done and or hasn't done. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Now I know that you went to Georgia Tech and obviously in Atlanta. So how did you get to Atlanta and why Georgia Tech? Yeah. So um, so I was good at math and I was good at science in in uh, in high school. Well, I guess I'm gonna be an engineer. And so. Uh, Georgia Tech, it's funny, I applied to a bunch of schools, and uh, Georgia. I picked Georgia Tech for two reasons. One was uh, my junior and senior year of high school, it snowed very hard in the winter in New York, and I was not, I, mean, I, I just come from Sudan where the weather is very much like Arizona. It's dry and it's hot and we don't have winters. So uh, I said, I'm going to go somewhere warm, stupidly thinking Atlanta's in the south and birds fly south for the winter. Okay. <laughs> go to Georgia Tech. Uh, the other, the other reason was Stephon Marbury went there, and so I said, "Oh, how hard could it be?" <laughs> Stephon Marbury went there, so I was like, "Okay, you know, like he's a New York guy, and it's a basketball school." Kenny Anderson went there, like I, if basketball reasons on my brain, even though I wasn't going to go play basketball there, and uh, I did not know, honest to God, people laugh 
when I say this, I did not know at the time that Georgia Tech was one of the best engineering schools in the country. I didn't know. It was, it was third, I think, in the country when I went there. It was like MIT. It was like Caltech, MIT, Georgia Tech was third. So we were, the, it was the best public university uh, in the nation at engineering. But I had no idea. And I, you just picked it basically because you knew that Stefan Marbury and Kenny Anderson – had played there. Yep. They're from New York. Uh, if and, they can do it. And and it doesn't snow there. And it doesn't that, that, snow. <laughs> My very sophisticated selection process. So I get down there and the classes, I didn't think the classes were hard, but it was a lot of work. But more than anything, I began to notice that everybody, all my classmates, uh, first of all, many of them were like, oh, it was my dream to go to Georgia Tech my entire life. And I didn't start thinking about college until, like, again, when I was 14. It was the first time I was like, ah, I wonder where I'm going to go to college. Um, and these are people, like, lifelong, and they had the, the freshman hats, and they went into the whole tradition and the pomp and circumstance. I'm sure you went to Clemson. It's pretty similar. It's, it's an ACC thing, right? Like, you know, um, so it, that, was, that was kind of off-putting. But then the other thing was, more importantly than that, was these people didn't just want to go to Georgia Tech because of Georgia Tech. They truly wanted to be engineers, uh, meaning uh, they their hobbies in life were engineering, right? They would take apart their computers and put them back together. They'd love, they were in programming class, like, oh, this is great, you know, all these different programs that we And, you know, again, this was all this was foreign to me. I was literally doing it because I was good at it. You know, we always we often talk about athletes, right? Does he love the game or does he just play because he's 6'8 and has a 40-inch vertical? I was the 6'8 guy with a 40-inch vertical in engineering school. <laughs> I had the tools, but zero passion. I, I was doing this because someone said you're going to get hired and you're going to get paid a lot of money to do it. And I thought everyone else was on a, a similar wavelength. You just thought, well, that's what we're all doing, right? And to see people like, no, these people love it. They, this is what they live for. I was like, oh, my God, what what am I doing here then? And so then I entered this phase where, well, you know, just got to get through it. If you get through it, you know, you're good. Um, but I remember waking up every day. I'm like, man, this is how it is just getting a degree. I'm going to do this for 40 years of, of like for a living, wake up in the morning and do something I hate and wait every other week for a paycheck that hopefully will allow me to buy things that'll take my mind. It just, it really drained me, but I didn't have, I mean, what else was I going to do? I didn't, I did not know what else there was to do. So I was just like, well, you got to keep doing this. And, uh, and then the faithful day, my, my roommate, a guy named Ken Cummings, he woke me up on a 6am on a Saturday morning and he said, Hey, Atlanta Hawks are having a job fair. And I said, very colorful language to get out of my room and leave me alone. <laughs> 6 a.m. on a Saturday in college, you know what Friday was like. That's right. And so he said, come on, hey, let's go, man. It might be cool. Might... And I said, they're not going to hire us. And he said, no, you never know. Let's see. I'm like, it's a waste of time. And then he said, we might be able to get to go to some games for free. And I remember laying there in bed saying, hmm, I wouldn't mind going to some games for free. Because, again, I'm a huge basketball fan. I'm, you know, pretty knowledgeable, way more knowledgeable than the average fan back in those days when you didn't have the internet to have information for you. You just had to know things. I knew things, right? So, like the collective bargaining agreement. I, I 
knew I knew those things, right? So um, I was like, all right, well, give it a try. So I got up and went down there, and there was like eight million people, and we both got hired. And so we did that, and it was a, a street team, basically glorified street team, a field marketing position. And we did that, and you know, at the end of the year, they took the best of the best from that, and they let them work in arena. And we were the best. Me and my buddy were the best of the best. And so now working in arena, now I'm getting to know coaches and front office people, and and things. I'm around more, and I'm beginning to realize, wait a second, I'm not. You don't have to be a former player, or the son of a coach, or some other blue blood, quote unquote, to work for a team, you could have regular people are going to school, getting degrees and, and, and getting these jobs. And that's when I said, okay, this is what I want to do. And I changed everything about my, my education, everything from that day on. Um, and I, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to work for a team. And when you were doing this with the Hawks, this is why you were still a student at Georgia tech. I'm still a student at Georgia tech. And, but at this point I'm like, I need, I need to go like, like that's when I was, I need to plot my, my exit. And so, uh, I left after that. And so what year was that? And what year in school was that? See my sophomore year, I believe. So what'd your parents have to say about this? No, they were, they were, they were thrilled. No, 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 this was, this was, this was the sum of all fears. This was, I might as well told them I want to be a drug dealer. Or, or, you know, I want to be a bank robber or, you know, I want to be a bum on the streets. Tell them I didn't want to be an engineer. And my other, my backup plan for this is we're going to work in sports. Kidding me? This <laughs> is, it's crushed him. And so, um, the way I kind of got around that was, uh, I, my brother was going to Arizona State at the time. And so, transferred to ASU and, and much like coming from Sudan to coming to New York for high school, going from Georgia Tech, going to Arizona State was like night and day in terms of, like, this is what you guys want me to do. I, was, I, I went from a pretty, like a C student at Georgia Tech, a, a very terrible C student, to I graduated with a 397 from Arizona State. It, it was like, this is the easiest. Like, I had one B and it was a class, I don't think it was, accounting, which again, was one of those things I have a blind spot for, but, um, so it, it was smooth sailing from there. And then at the end of that, that's when I got my internship with the Knicks at the end of, of my undergrad. And then after my internship, which I thought was going to turn into a job, it didn't really turn into that. So I moved back to Arizona and I finished up my, uh, finished up my, uh, I, I did my graduate degree and in the middle of between the first and second year. So when I got my job with the Suns in basketball ops, and at this time, it's kind of, now I know what the expectations are. Now I know how to maneuver the landscape, you know, how to demonstrate value, things that I didn't know when I was the Nick, I learned too late in my next internship that people weren't going to give you assignments. That these, these internships, particularly in the basketball departments, weren't, organized internships like you would see in other jobs where the intern has to do this and that and this and that and that. And then by the way, you're going to sit in on this meeting where it's an actual educational experience in a lot of basketball departments, at least back then, I, I think it's better now, but back then it was, uh, you have an internship. Okay. The intern sit there. 
And then, hey, we need someone to FedEx something. Give it to the intern. But in between you showing up in the morning and that request that might come at 11 a.m., no one was giving you any projects. No one was giving you any guidance or advice or any of that. So I did not realize until too late in the next process, I started figuring out, I'm just do projects. I'll come up with crazy projects. And so um, when I came into the Suns one, it was, you know, like the wrestler priming his elbow before jumping off the top rope. That's I came in like that. Like they went away for training camp in Italy because they were doing one of those NBA Europe tours. And when they came back, I had like three projects done. And I was like, here you go. And everyone's like, whoa, you know. Um, and so when you say projects, what do you mean like projects? So when I was with the Knicks, I had a theory about Jamal Crawford's shot selection, I think it was. And so I did this whole, I charted every single game and I counted the dribbles. And then I um, figured like what his field goal percentage was at the end of it. And it was something like his field goal percentage was really good on catch and shoots and pretty good on one dribble. And then it two dribbles, it drops down. And it like it just it was a precipitous drop. With every additional dribble, his field goal percentage was just so much way terrible, right? Um that was one of the ones that no one saw, but uh Dick McGuire saw it and he looked at it and he's like, What is this? And I told him what it was and he was looking through it and he looks at me and he's like, Why are you wasting your time working in basketball? <laughs> you should be doing something more more for you know, like you could be a lawyer or he, just, he couldn't believe that I wanted to work in basketball. He was like, This is we don't. We can't do anything else. That's why we do this. You actually have, a, you know, a mind about you to think about things, and then go ahead and try to, you know, exa- You know, in- investigate. Like, you know, you have actual life skills. I guess is what he was saying. <laughs> um, so, for for instance, when I got to the Suns, they had uh, they had a kind of performance metric that they used to rate different NBA players, right? the formula and they applied the formula like they you they would put in all the stats and then the formula was fit out like a rating and it would measure it was it wasn't it was not even like a hard and fast thing that they went by it was just kind of like a a nice tool to thin the herd or kind of organize things in a certain way and so when they went to italy i took that formula broke it apart i figured out how it was calculated and then i uh created a spreadsheet that read all of the stats of every single college player uh, and pulled that, ran it through the formula, and then, boom, now I have every single college player ranked by this formula that they'd used for only NBA players up to that point. So they came back, I was like, oh, here we go. I, I got these called BIQ. I said, here you go. Every single college player, then 330-some-odd colleges in America, ranked by BIQ. And there were little filters in there, so you could get rid of the guys that only play three minutes or whatever. And you know, you could sort by different things. And I added out a bunch of other stats that, at the time, weren't being tracked and calculated and all that. And I was like, "Here you go." And so, and this was uh, unrequested or whatever. And I think that kind of that that that, that impressed, uh, you know, some of the people I reported to. Like, oh wow, like it, it, it had less to do with like the information being incredible. And more to do with, oh, he didn't just sit here and read Sports Illustrated all day while we were gone. Yeah, you took the initiative to do something. You took the initiative, yeah. 
And then from, so then how do you get to the, the promotion up to assistant director of basketball operations for the Suns? Yeah, so um, that experience in the first month or so really changed the game, right? Because now I demonstrated my value and uh, I built trust with different people. And they all had kind of seen very quickly, oh, this guy, you know, he's a go-getter. Uh, he's around all the time. You know, I, I, my internship called me, called for me to work 20 hours a week. Um, and I was there a bit 60 or 70. And so at the end of the year, uh, one of the assistant coaches got a head coaching job uh, in, uh, in Memphis. And he took one of the video coordinators with him. And so the guys in um, – the guys said, well – we have a video coordinator position open. Do you want it? And of course, you know, like this is my first, now this is going to be my first paid job with benefits. Right. And I'd never, I'd never had health benefits before <laughs> or, you know, or, or dental <laughs> or vision or whatever. And so, you know, I, I jumped at it and I remember, you know, it's funny. I tried to negotiate my contract. It's, that's the funniest thing. I, <laughs> like, I wonder, I got to ask David Griffin that because, he says to me, uh, hey, this is all we got. And it was a very low number. And I said, oh, man, I can't live on that. That's, I mean, that's cool, man. You want me to pay rent on that? And he said, well, that's what I made as a video coordinator when I started. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously he's now the, like the VP of basketball ops. So I said, okay. And so I went and I looked up what year he was a video coordinator. And then I like looked up. Basically, to the cost of living adjustment and inflation and all that, and I said, "Well, according to this, that means you guys owe me another fifteen thousand dollars." <laughs> Did you tell him you're going to be a holdout? Yeah, yeah, a holdout. I should have said that, but you know. But so I did that, and then Coach D'Antoni left. He went to New York, and so they were going to hire a whole new coaching staff. And so they said, "Do you want to remain a video coordinator with the new coaching staff?" Or we can move you up to the front office. Well, for me, you know, most video coordinators end up being coaches. And I didn't want to be a coach. And so and I said, no, let's go upstairs. So I went upstairs and I was like a scouting coordinator. So to alleviate some of the pressure off the video room, like I inherited all of the front office video stuff. So whereas the video room, when I was a video coordinator before me, hey, you also had to do edits of the college guys and the free agents and the trade targets and all that. Um, when I moved upstairs, I inherited those those uh, job duties to allow the guys downstairs to just focus on the team pretty much and our upcoming opponents. Um, and then from there, you know, I became assistant director of basketball ops. So that, that allowed me to travel a little bit more and, you know, do some scouting on my own. Um, I, the whole time I was helping out with player development on the floor, um, you know, assisting with coaches and working guys out after hours and things like that. That had to be surreal for you considering that one day you're waking up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday at Georgia Tech yeah. to now it, you're helping work out guys and you're assistant director of basketball operations in the NBA. I mean, that's unreal. Well, I think I think the unreal part came when I when when I got the when I got paid. Like that was oh my god! Like this is it's my 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 ship has finally come home, right? Like the idea of 
this thing that has worked for and sought for and sacrificed for and fought for with fought family over and, and things like that is finally like, look, I did it. Um, from that moment, then it, it just turned into this is the job. And I thought in my mind, I thought I was going to be assistant director for a couple more years. And then after that, I'd be a director and I'd, I would end up a director of basketball ops or director of player personnel. It wasn't necessarily a title. I knew I never wanted to be a GM. I didn't even think I could be a GM. Yeah, why didn't you want to be a GM? Well, I think I think first of all, there's there's a part of me that's extremely like <laughs> some part of me that's extremely delusional, and there's a part of me that's extremely realistic. And the delusional part, obviously, is the idea like, no, I, I can work in the NBA. Watch me do it, and and you think about it, it's like it's kind of ridiculous <laughs> to even set out <laughs> to do that and and be like wholeheartedly think, yeah, this is going to happen. Uh, but the, the realistic part is stuff like, and like there's only 30 GMs. Uh, how many of them at the time? Now, I mean, there, there, obviously there's 30 GMs, but how many of them at the time were not former players, right? Like I knew, like, look, I, I'm, I'm not a former player. My dad wasn't a long time. I wasn't like Larry Harris, whose dad was Del Harris or, you know, or the Babcocks, where it was a, like it was one of the royal families of, of basketball or something. I'm an unknown person who came in this thing scrapping, not by any way of nepotism or not by any way of hereditary anything or, or, or by my own athletic achievements. And I have a funny name and I'm not from this country. <laughs> I mean, all of those things are like, get a grip. You're not going to get it. You're not going to be a GM in this league. It's beyond the regular, like, Hey, there are only 30 of these jobs to, to, to have that as a goal is kind of, kind of ridiculous but then you take it a step further so let's just assume that hey look you are in the running for one of these jobs you know you get to the interview and you know, owners are going to look like, well, i can't even say his name how, how am i going to make him my my gm and again this was at a time where it was very different now you look across the league a lot of these guys don't have playing experience right uh and then in the case of of masai ujiri the the uh the GM for the Raptors, you know, the guy with no playing experience who has a funny name and all, like, like all the things that I thought would disqualify me from being a GM in this league, you know, he has been kind of disproven or whatever. But beyond that, I think I don't think I have a temper, temperament for it. I think you kind of have to be an elder statesman. People like me make very good. And I'm like uh, Fredo, not Fredo, excuse me, Sonny, like Sonny Corleone, <laughs> like Sonny Corleone, right? Like Sonny couldn't be, couldn't take over the family business. Like he's too hot headed, and you know, wasn't you know quick to say the you know the wrong thing or whatever. Michael was reserved, and Michael was mature and all that. And that's why Michael got the family business, and 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 Sonny was kind of a capo or whatever you want to call. It. That's that's what I am. I'm, I'm a lieutenant. I'm I, I'm a, a second in command. I'm a guy who wins hearts and minds of the you know of the the building you know, get people behind ideas and behind uh, concepts and things like that. But I'm not fit to lead. So how difficult was that then for you to to leave basketball and venture into this whole nother world through ESPN? Well, I mean, it was, it was, well, first of all, it was unplanned. I never, I never, never expected, to, I, I, when people ask me, how do I, how do I get into it? Like, I want to work for ESPN one day. I, I don't know. I still don't know how it happened. I mean, it'd be like walking up to 
an astronaut. I was like, how do I become an astronaut? Like, or, or even worse, it'd be, it'd be like an astronaut coming up to you. It's like, hey, you want to be an astronaut? I never thought about this. I never really imagined it. And so uh, at the time when I left the team, I was, my plan was to get back with another team. And so I was, I went to summer league and I met with people and I was kind of networking and I was passing out resumes and, and all this stuff. And, um, uh, I had a friend of mine who worked at ESPN and he had like a video web video series where he would do interviews, one-on-one interviews. And he was like, Hey, he'd always been asking me to be on it when I was a team. I said, the team won't let me do that. But then when he heard I'd left, I said, well, can you do it now? And I said, sure. And my idea was if I do these videos, Somebody's going to watch and say, hey, I like that guy. Maybe that's going to help me get a job somewhere, get a look somewhere. And what ended up happening with someone at ESPN was like, who's he? And does he want to, would he want to write about stuff from a front office perspective? And so my buddy said, hey, do you want to write? And I said, I don't know, because the only thing I've ever written are like college papers and scouting reports. And so... So they said, well, let's give it a try. And they made me write a trial piece. And I wrote it. They liked it. And they said, okay, well, let's do this. Let's do 10 uh, pieces. And it, by the 10th one, if you like doing this and if we like your work, we'll talk about something more permanent. And probably after the third or fourth one, they flew me to Bristol for what they call the car wash, which is when you go in there and you, you meet a zillion people because Bristol's in the middle of nowhere. And so once they got you there, <laughs> They're going to try and make you meet everybody. <laughs> and we started negotiations on, on what was going to be like a one-year deal. And uh, it took a couple of months to get that done and got the one year. And then after that, uh, they offered me a three-year deal. Uh, so I did the three-year deal. And probably midway through the second year, we tore up the deal. And I'm on the contract that I'm on now. And, and you know, but I remember when I signed that three-year deal, they said, hey, by the end of this third year, you might be doing some TV. And probably six months after that conversation, I actually started doing SportsCenter. And a year later, I was one of the main, or six months after that, I was one of the main NBA guys on the SportsCenter circuit. And then uh, six months after that, or another year after that, uh, they launched the jump and they picked me to be part of part of, part of of that project. So that's, that's, where, that's where I'm at now, you know. And it's an amazing journey. And what do you find yourself more passionate about, the radio side or the TV side? Well, passion probably isn't the right way to describe it, but it's radio is easier because you have a lot more time to talk and you have a lot less structure. TV is a very structured environment. And I think that's something I know I didn't know, but I, I think a lot of people don't realize uh, at home how structured TV is, where they want you to talk about things in, within a certain window, quick and sharp and, pain, and painless, so we can move on to the next thing, so we can get to this commercial break. And, that, and it's very, okay, now this and now this and now this. Now, I'll say this. The shows that we do here in L.A. are probably the loosest shows, uh, the loosest TV shows that, that ESPN uh, produces um, because they do let us color outside the lines. They do let us, Look, if we're going good on a topic, they're not going to stop us. Um, they're going to say, all right, let's, let's ride this out because this is good TV. But a lot of TV shows aren't like that. They're very, okay, guys, we've got to move on because we have another topic. We've got to, get to talk about the Bulls. And, and so TV is very, can feel very restricted like that. Radio, because you're talking about, for most radio shows, you're talking about three-hour shows, 
two to three hour shows, right? It's a lot of time. So it allows you to bloviate. It allows you to talk about something, go away, then come back and talk about it again. These are things you'll never see on TV. The, the idea that we had, we had a conversation, we're going to come back and talk about it again. Right, that doesn't happen in TV, but, but radio, it gives you, it gives you the opportunities for that. But at the same time, I also recognize that radio doesn't get you paid like TV does because a lot of, I mean, a lot of us, a lot of, you know, it's kind of silly, but a lot of what judges your commercial success is how many people know who you are, how many people have seen you. And when you're on TV, I mean, like that's, that's the magic of TV, right? A guy can get in his car, turn on the radio, listen to me for 30 minutes, maybe as he's driving somewhere and never have any idea who I am. Right. My every, if one, once a week he gets in his car and drives 30 minutes and I'm, I happen to be on the radio. Unless he's like a really diehard radio listener, a lot of people it's just background noise. But a guy can be walking through the airport and stop off at the, you know, Chili's or whatever, and Sports Center can or Sports Nation can be on mute, and I'm on it. If he sees me, he's like, "I know you." <laughs> he may have never heard my voice. He may not know any of my opinions. Doesn't even know my name, but he knows who I am because he's seen me on sports nation or on a TV somewhere enough times when he's doing things. Cause every bar you go into and every restaurant that they have TVs on, unless there's a game on, it's probably on ESPN. It's probably on an ESPN channel. And it'll, most of the time it's muted, but you'll see these faces that come up again and again. And so that's, that's a, that's a great advantage. And again, like I said, the TV shows that we do here in LA, they are the closest thing to to radio that I, I would say that's on TV, and so in terms of how they're produced, and so I, I enjoy doing them very much. What about future plans for you then? What do you see yourself? What, what's the horizon look like? Well, I mean, I'll be honest. This is like when I was assistant director, or whatever. Like we, the the roadmap ended a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know, even when I said, "Hey, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna work in, you know, I'm gonna do this." media thing and I'm going to do TV and, and some radio and some digital stuff. And all right, well now I'm doing that. And people ask, oh, what's next? Like, I have no idea I did not plan for this to happen. <laughs> uh, this, this didn't, I didn't have a, a plan for this to happen this quickly. I thought this would be a much more gradual ascent. And so, you know, it's kind of like climbing and say, I'm going to climb to that cliff and I expect to get to the top of the cliff in a week. And you get there by by lunchtime. <laughs> you're like, well, is there any more clips? And I look up, and I'm like, okay, there's the more climbing, so I guess we'll we'll try that. But this is all, as far as I'm concerned, this is gravy. Everything I'm doing from here on out. And then, how would you describe the impact of sports in your life and what it's meant to you? Well, I mean, for me, this is puts food on the table. This is, I, I didn't. I mean, you know, Charles Barkley talks about he's never worked a day in his life. I'm not Charles Barkley, but, you know, I, I literally never had a job, a real job. Like, you know, these little part-time jobs. Like I said, I worked in a computer store, stuff like that. But I, I talk about it sometimes with my family. So if I quit this, there's no other job I can have, right? I've got to work in sports in some capacity. Um, you know, I, I have friends who are, let's say, community relations directors for teams. But you can do that for anything. You can go from being the, com the community relations director for the Green Bay Packers and then get a job being the community relations director for 
Miller Brewing. And so the only thing I could have done that wasn't working for a team is what I'm doing now. And I didn't even, and at the time I didn't even realize that was an option. So you do this now. And so if I left this, what would I do? Uh, I assume it would be something sports related. And even if it weren't, I, I assume it would be something, an opportunity I got because of what I'm doing now, which is sports. So sports, I owe everything in my life to this. And from that perspective, this journey that you've been on, are there any words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you? Any phrases, quotes, mottos, or just life advice that has meant a lot to you that you would like to share? So let's see. So Frank Murphy, uh, no, not Frank, it was Dick, Dickie McGuire. Uh, he used to have all of his scouting reports handwritten. Uh, this is when I was at the Knicks. And so one of my jobs was I had to take his handwritten scouting reports and type them in to the computer, in the computer database. And so his scouting reports were notoriously short. If you really liked the guy, you would say, good kid, you know, like his size, nice, you know, good explosion, second rounder. Like that was a, that was a glowing scouting report from, from Dickie McGuire. There were... <laughs> There were some where he would just write CNP, uh, which means cannot play. <laughs> uh, like that's it. The whole kind of report would be just guy's name, his school, uh, height, weight, and then the, the report would be CNP, cannot play. And so I I asked him one day, I said, Dickie, you know, all these guys are writing these reports and they're breaking down all this different stuff, and then your reports are a couple of words long. So what, what's the deal with that? And he says, uh, kid, we all know who can play and who can't. And the only reason why you write anything more than that is because you're trying to cover your ass in case you're wrong. And I, I, th- those words stuck with me forever. I don't know. I don't even know if that's applicable in any way. <laughs> but but it was just it was funny to me because there's a lot of stuff where people are just see why they're covering their cover your ass and doing things because just to do them. And and I think. Sometimes, I mean, if you're honest with yourself and you know you work hard and you put in the requisite work, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do things just to do it. Sometimes you gotta, there's gotta be a, a reason to do things. And there's obviously at times just a beauty in efficiencies. And it obviously sounds like Dick was very efficient in his scouting reports, that's for sure. <laughs> Dick, Dick, Dick was a legend. RIP, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he was he was a legend, man. That was a guy that straight shooter, didn't mince words, but you know, he, you know, especially guys, you know, this is a guy played in the fifties, man. So he's literally seen. Dicky McGuire was someone who had seen the NBA literally it's the entirety from beginning till his end, and so it was a very cool, very cool resource to have. And to learn from. And one last question: What's the biggest change you've seen in the NBA since you've been involved with it? Ooh, um, I think. Ooh, the biggest change. I think uh, the the embracing of just new information because I see it in other sports and how slow they are to embrace new sources of information. Whether that's analytics, whether that's psych profiles, whether it's like training as far as like sleep, sleep science and nutrition and all that. And so the biggest change I think has been the availability of heavy, heavy uh, stats 
that are come from those cameras that they put in every arena, uh, the optical tracking data, where you can see how many miles a player ran, how fast, or things like what his heart rate was. If they got the, the monitors and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, for me, in my days, I, I was an analytics guy, but all of our numbers had to come from a box score one way or another. And then, and then we had to process it and find the efficiencies from the available box score metrics, rebounds, assists, field goal attempts, et cetera. If you were really crazy, you were charting. But at the same time, you really couldn't use any of those metrics to measure anyone else because you weren't charting for that. And, you know, it's impossible to chart every player and every team all across the league. And then this optical tracking data comes in, the sport view data comes in, and all of a sudden you have answers to all sorts of questions. You know, how many pick and rolls they ran and what happened when they got trapped and what happened versus when they went under on the screen or over on the screen or the ice screen and what happens when it was on the left side of the floor and the right side of the floor with the high pick and roll and what happens when they did it with Curry and Durant versus just Durant versus just Curry versus when Zaza was the big or JaVale was the big, you know, all every single kind of different little slice of information, sort of information, we have that, I can pull it up right now. It takes me just the amount of time of clicking a couple of things and I can give you all that information. And so now what do you do with it? So are we at a point, though, is there how much information is too much information if you're not able to utilize it in a way that at the end of the day results in more wins? Right. So, And, and to me, that's, that's the difference maker right there. The people who know how to use it, they're using it, and they're using it very well. And so who are, who are some of those teams? Let's say Golden State's one of those teams. Toronto's one of those teams. Um, Miami definitely is one of those teams. San Antonio, uh, Boston, uh, Philadelphia. Um, in a weird way, it's, it's almost obvious. You can tell which ones are using it and using it correctly. And now a lot of times also it'll be, it'll be disguised by talent, right? So Golden State, it's hard to say, yeah, they're doing great because they're using these advanced metrics correctly. Um, we're like, oh, but you got an M- you got two MVPs that are out. But people don't forget that the first championship year they had the same roster the year before, where uh, Tino won fifty games and was a second round knockout. People thought, okay, they're a nice little team. They're not there yet, and they went overnight almost from from just being another team, another night like Portland. The way we look at Portland today, or Utah, or, or Washington, to the most unstoppable thing in basketball, you know, and a lot of that was them knowing, for instance, how many passes a game they had, right? That's something that you can track how many passes of any sort, not assists, just passes, right? Because here's the big fault in assists. People, I used to say this about James Harden before he played for Mike D'Antoni. He said, um, it's not that he's a bad pass. It's the type of passer he is. You say, what do you mean? He's averaging nine assists a game. I said, okay. So you, you were a coach, right? So, Imagine we're playing ball together and I'm the guard and I'm bringing the ball up and it's 24 on the clock and I spend 20 of those seconds dribbling the air out the ball. I'm going to try and drive this way. Oh, wait, they stopped. They're trying. Okay, let me dribble back, come up top. Oh, come uh, pull a screen. Let me call for a screen. The screen comes up and I go and I, I can't turn the corner. So I cross over and I come back and look, they just got to Here, pass it to you. You shoot the ball, score. That's an assist, right? All right, compare and contrast with I dribble the ball of court. As soon as I cross half court, I pass you the ball and you score. 
or even better, I dribble the ball up the court. I pass it to you. You pass it back to me. And then you run off a flare screen. And then I throw it back over top to you and flare it. And you score off of that. Do you feel like at the end of each one of those assists, do you feel the same? No. You're not engaged. Yeah. The other way, you're engaged. Exactly. You're part of the, the game. Exactly. And so that's the thing that the assist robs us from is that it doesn't tell us what kind of assist was that, right? So is it, even, if, even if the assist at the end of the 20 seconds was a thread the needle, no look, spinning, alley-oop pass on the money, it still took 20 seconds of you waiting and basically not, not doing anything, right? You might have cut and back screened and done all this stuff, but the ball never really left that, the, my hands as the guard. And so there, there really is a limited satisfaction there as opposed to, again, something where I'm hitting the high post and then I'm, I'm cutting away and now I set a screen for you and now you're curling off of me and the guy in the high post hits you and then they collapse on you and you kick it back to me in the corner. And I sh- like, now we're involved. Now we're all feeling part of this. And so the, thing, the, the differentiator there is we had three, four, five, six passes in a possession as opposed to one. So I ended up with an assist, right? But, but if the assist came differently. Now, I'm not like these college coaches. I don't advocate, hey, we've got to pass it 10 times for someone to shoot. I think that's dumb. Basketball is a game of opportunity. If you have an opportunity, you go take it. I don't care if there was no assist on the play. But, but if the opportunity isn't there, the idea that we're not going to sit around and jab step and probe and do all of these things where everyone is just sitting and waiting. And I think those are the kind of things that you can measure. You can measure how fast we were in our, in our possession. You know, Mike D'Antoni used to talk about that. Like, we're not up-tempo in the sense that we fast-break every time. We're up-tempo in that even in our half-court set, guys are running, right? Guys are running to the deep corners. They're not meandering to the deep corners. Right? The guys are setting the screen and exploding out of that screen on the roll. They're not setting the screen and then just kind of waddling over, not quite popping and not quite rolling. Because it doesn't help. It doesn't force the defense to react. Defense reacts from sharp movements, right? So they're like, oh, he's cutting hard. That must be a live cut. He must be getting the ball. Well, not necessarily. He's getting the ball if he's open. But if he's not open, he's throwing it somewhere else because he just created a diversion that the defense had to fall for. And so what we're all talking about here is, again, like these are things that we know intrinsically. We know the traditional box score doesn't tell us but these new numbers do. These new numbers tell us how fast we played. These new numbers tell us how much you moved around on the court when you were out there, what your top speed was. These new numbers tell us how many passes we had. These new numbers tell us where the ball went. Did we pass it around the perimeter, around the horn a bunch of times? Was the penetration of the ball, not just the players, but the ball. And all of these things are available to us. And so we have ways of expressing numerically things that coaches have coached. I'll tell you one more story. Um, I had a, uh, there was a player. Uh, he's actually a really good player in the league right now. He's, it's a guy who's, who's won some awards in this league and generally considered a good guy. Uh, he was asked by someone, hey, what do you think of analytics? And he said, oh, I, I don't think there's any real place for it in this league. I think, you know, like if you play the game, you know. And, you know, he, he said you know, a lot of this kind of very old school mentality, you know, very resistant to the idea of, of, of analytics. And then the, someone asked him, the next question they asked him was, uh, what do you think about the rise of the corner three in the NBA, the importance of the corner three? 
And he says, oh, it's so important. Our coaches preach it so much. I mean, it's so different from when I first came in the league. The corner three is really important because, you know, it, it, you know because it's such a short shot, it, you know, it, it, it allows us to set up uh, offensive plays that make the defense make hard decisions. And he goes on and praises this switch in philosophy. And the, the interviewer is really funny because he never pointed out explicitly. But what that player didn't know is the reason why we shoot a lot of corners, why we know all this about shooting corner threes is good is because of analytics. Of course. Right? That's why we know. It wasn't, there wasn't a coach who woke up one day and was like, I wonder if we should try to admit. It's like they got the numbers and they're like, oh, wow. We, we, our offense is unstoppable when the defense has to make this decision right here. Right? It, you know, everything we, we do in life is, is tied to numbers one way or another. You know, uh, even, you know, you know, I used to joke about this about Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley is the preeminent basketball analyst in the, in the, in the world, really. There's no more uh, valuable voice out there. And he's probably the highest paid of us all, right? Uh, how did they find out that Charles Barkley was really popular and he should be paid the most money? I think they guessed because they like him because he's funny. Like, no, they have ratings. Ratings say, look, when this when this guy talks, people pay attention and people listen. Even if he's awfully, awfully wrong on a point, it doesn't matter he's wrong. It matters that people are paying attention. Analytics told them that, and that's why he gets paid the big bucks, as he should. But it's just funny to me when people rail against this thing that they use every day, uh, but it's just because it's not pointed out to them. And so for us, when we were dealing with players, we never told them what the numbers were. We didn't care. Who cares what the numbers are? All they need to know is, look, you're not doing this well enough, or he does this really well, and we need to watch out for this. I don't need to give him numbers. I can just show him a couple of video examples. See, see what he likes to do there when he's on the left side. You got to watch out for that. Message sent. I know that that came from analytics, but he, the player, doesn't need to know that. That's right. Wow, that's powerful. I mean, that's that really is. And I could talk to you for hours, but you've been too kind to let me steal so much of your time. So thank you. I greatly appreciate it. No problem. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Pivots in life don't just happen without taking some type of action. And sometimes it's not always positive unless you take initiative and act to make that pivot. Amin faced those pivotal points as a student at Georgia Tech and even as he made the decision to leave the NBA and make the move to ESPN. But once you make a pivot, there's no room for passivity. And one thing we know about Amin is the word passive isn't in his dictionary. Now that finishes episode 67. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.